listening to Carnivore Conversations, a podcast exploring the benefits of keto, carnivore, intermittent feasting, and other lifestyle hacks. Each week, we'll be interviewing a special guest from the keto carnivore community and so much more. This is your host, board-certified and practicing physician, Dr. Robert Kiltz. Rob Kiltz is so excited to bring on uh, Mubaraka Ibrahim, an amazing maintenance fitness coach, cheerleader, and inspiration that's been uh, around the globe and inspiring men and women all over. And welcome and thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's my pleasure. And there's so many people in need of what you do. Can you just share a little bit about yourself and how you got into this uh, fitness world? Oh, wow. So I would say um, I got into fitness. Um, I was first inspired to be more conscious of health and fitness from my mom having gestational diabetes and then developing full-blown type 2 diabetes. Um, she got pregnant with my little sister when I was about seven years old and her gestational diabetes turned into type two diabetes. And so most of my life, um, she just didn't know how to manage it, right? And so unfortunately she passed away several years ago from the effects of unmanaged diabetes for over 30 years. And so as a kid, I remember having conversations around the living room about what part of our mom that we inherited? Who inherited her legs and who inherited her great skin and who, right? And then the conversation with my sisters and I literally was, well, who's going to inherit her diabetes, right? And I can just, re I can remember as a teenager, it's like, y'all can have that. <laughs> I didn't want that part. <laughs> so um, at a very young age, I did, even when I did not understand completely what it meant to have type 2 diabetes. I just sort of had this innate um, feeling of this has something to do with lifestyle and I'm going to figure out how I cannot inherit that part of her life. So I started being physically active probably when I was about 13. I'm like, can I just go running before I go to school? And so that's what I would do. I would go run three miles, come back, get dressed, get on a bus. <laughs> um, and so that's what kind of, that is the, the impetus of why I'm so passionate about women uh, being educated about how to heal themselves. And tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and your education that put you into this, this uh, health and wellness arena. Absolutely. So I grew up as a child, a little bit of everything where we moved, <laughs> we moved a lot. So I was actually born in a little town called Sanoa, Georgia. Um, and I was born at home. Wow. <laughs> I say, I tell people that my birth story is like a country song. I was born at home in a little shack on a farm um, by the lights, by the headlights of a car because wow. they have electricity and so their friend had to pull the car to the window because the sun started going down as I began to emerge into the world. <laughs> so as actually where I was born, I spent uh, part of my childhood down south, part of my childhood in uh, New York. Um, and 
I got into the education of health and wellness after I gave birth to my first son because I had some major complications. So like I said earlier, I was always very conscious of, hey, my physical health is going to be the determiner of whether or not I inherit these diseases. So my mother's family, my mother had diabetes, her mother had diabetes, her father had diabetes, very strong um, um, propensity towards diabetes on that side. And my father's family has a very strong propensity for high blood pressure. In fact, my father passed away when I was 11 years old hmm. from stroke induced by high blood pressure. He didn't even know he had high blood pressure. He was not overweight. He, he had a stroke. Um, so when I got pregnant with my first son, I, at the beginning of my last trimester, my pelvic bone collapsed. And I was in a wheelchair for three days. So a condition called uh, pelvic synthesis, where the pelvic bone sort of prematurely separates. Um, and I, when I got pregnant, I was 115 pounds. When I gave birth, I was 198 pounds. Wow. Gained wow. most of that weight going from being an active person to literally being in a wheelchair for three months. Wow. And so... After I had the baby, I was like, I, this is, I can't, right? <laughs> I was very scared to, about inheriting all of those diseases. And so I began to uh, put together um, a diet and exercise program. Those are the days where we had to actually go to the library and check out books about nutrition. <laughs> and so I put together a program for myself and I lost all of the weight and mm -hmm. other and my mom started asking me, like, can you help me lose weight? You did such a great job. Can you help me? And at the time, I was actually in college, majoring in English and minoring in psychology. And I remember the day so well, I had created a plan for a friend of mine. And then I was like, we have to adjust it every six weeks. And so we were sitting down to do her adjustments. And she looked at me. And she was like, Umarika, you know what? You're pretty good at this. You should become a personal trainer. And I was like, you can make money doing this. <laughs> and that began my wow. fitness wow. career. I discovered that the college across town on the opposite side of the city actually offered exercise science as a major. So I literally chucked everything in that college pretty much had to start over because it's a whole lot different than majoring in English. And I decided to go to college for exercise science. Wow. Wow. And tell us a little bit about your mother and father, because I, my sister was very, had diabetes since age four, and that inspired me to go into medicine and learn more. And she died at 52 and the, from diabetic complications and wonderful, amazing young, young woman that, that passed, but she was always positive. And, and I was sort of on a quest to figure it out. And I think our past matters. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your family, your past, and, and how you integrate all of that in your modern world. For me, my biggest inspiration is my mother, both her challenges as well as her triumphs, right? Her challenges inspire me because she suffered from diabetes, unmanaged diabetes, out of ignorance and saying that in like the most simplistic definition of the words, she literally did not know, no one taught her. 
that now knowing what I know and looking back at the journey that she went through, it really saddens me. I remember she had a doctor that fired her. <laughs> fired her, fired her. The doctor right? literally, literally sent her a letter and told her that she could no longer be her provider because of her non-compliance and inability to control her blood glucose. And she literally fired her. Now, this is a doctor who never sent her to a nutritionist or dietitian or like, and at the time we sort of like giggled it off and she found another doctor. But in retrospect, it, it, I mean, it would be abhorrent for a doctor to do that today. So we're talking like 20 years ago. Um, she was never given an education. I remember, so I used to own a physical studio and oftentimes my mother would call me to tell me about her health and ask for advice that she was not going to follow, but it's okay because she was my mom. <laughs> and she used to have these episodes. So she was, she literally did not know what to eat. When, when we would tell her like, you should not eat this. And she's like, oh, just give me the cake because everything makes my sugar go up. Oh, just give me the, the soda. Everything makes my sugar. So she, because she literally believed that like, no matter what she ate, that everything was going to make her sugar go up. And her normal was having a, a blood sugar of two, 300. Wow. And so wow. she would often go to the doctor and the doctor would literally look at her. I mean, I've been to doctor's appointments with her and he's like, I don't understand why you're not in a coma right now. Like your mm. blood sugar is so high. I need to call an ambulance and get you to a hospital. And so this was not uncommon to happen maybe two or three times a year. Her go to the doctor and her sugar is so high that they immediately take her to the hospital. Finally, one year, they actually referred her to a dietitian and an education group after she left the hospital. Wow. In this particular year, I remember I was at work and she called me and she's like, um, they want me to go see this dietitian and sit in these groups to learn about how to eat with diabetes. Do you think I should go? And I said to her, I said, you've had diabetes for 25 years. Nobody ever sent you to an education class, a dietitian, a nutritionist. She's like, no. I was like, yes, you should definitely go. <laughs> and unfortunately, by this time, she had, you know, neuropathy. She had mm. glaucoma. She had, so it was an effort, but it was a little, a, a little bit too little too late, right? So her health was so significantly impacted. I remember her going through a phase of, where we physically could not hug her because she would be in physical pain if anybody touched her because of her the way that her nerves were beginning to deteriorate. Wow. Um, so it's it's that, and that wasn't that was probably the biggest aha moment. Before that phone call with my mother, I focused on general health of women. I focused on weight loss. And that one phone call just like really flipped a switch for me. And I was like, you can tell people, you can diagnose their disease all day, but if you don't tell them how to eat and how to move, they'll always suffer. And it was like, I understood at that moment that we had actually been misjudging my mom, right? Mm -hmm. We thought that she knew and just decided not to follow the rules. 
but she literally had no idea. So conversations with her after that, and she's like, when she was diagnosed with diabetes, the doctor's like, here's insulin and you should probably stop drinking Pepsi. That was the extent of her conversation with her doctor. And so from that point on, I really recommitted myself and upped my education of how food and movement affects our hormones, affects our, our insulin, affects our metabolism and our overall well-being. So now keto a little bit. And I just kind of want to talk a little bit about your transition in the keto world. And that's probably what brings us all together. It's either keto or carnivore in general. And 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 I want to get back a little bit and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit is because my sister and I believe your mom also maybe was just given the wrong advice, but I can't, I don't even blame the doctors anymore because they're given the wrong advice. Absolutely. And we just didn't know. So maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe some better advice and how you got into that. Mm. So I got into uh, keto and low carb eating. Initially, I think probably just um, gradually, but it was a part of my intuition, right? So even before I knew anything about what keto was, when I first started my health and fitness career, it was always, I always would tell people, reduce carbohydrates, reduce carbohydrates. I constantly, I've never in my entire 22 years of helping women improve their nutrition habits, have never told anybody to eat anything over 40%. 40% was like the highest if somebody did an active job. I always knew that when I reduced clients' carbohydrates, they just did so much, so significantly better. And that was before I even knew what keto was. And the way that I discovered keto was when I turned 40, the weight just would not budge, right? I had a lot of life stuff going on before then, and I started to put on a little weight. And so I started to pull out, you know, the programs that I recommend to my clients, right? You eat uh, whole grains, you eat low fat, you eat, you know, moderate amount of protein, make sure you have lots of fruits and vegetables, have your green smoothie every morning, right? All of these, all of, all of this practical advice, right? And so the story of my keto journey was before my 40th birthday, so I like to set just random goals for myself because when you would like to stay in a good physical uh, um, fitness, um, have good physical fitness, then you should set periodically goals. So on going into my 40th birthday, I'm 46, by the way. I'm not ashamed to tell people how old I am. I'm very happy that I've lived to be 46 years old. <laughs> um, so before I turned 40, I decided to get army fit. Wow. <laughs> no intentions of joining the army, but what I did as a goal for my 40th birthday, I looked up the requirements to join the U.S. Army. How fast do you have to run? How many push-ups do you have to do? Like every, how many pull-ups you have to do? And so I spent about six months literally working out six days a week and aiming for it. Because in my mind and what we tell people, right, on a practical level is, Focus on the journey, right? Don't just focus on the weight. Don't just focus on the scale. So in my mind, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to focus on the journey. Not going to worry about the scale. The scale is important, 
right? But I'm not going to focus on a scale. So my 40th birthday comes and I test myself. I pass everything with flying colors. I'm running a seven minute mile. I'm doing push-ups. I'm doing pull-ups for the first time in my life. And in that six months, I lost about 10 pounds. That's it. I needed to lose 40, <laughs> but I only lost about, and I was like, there is something wrong. Of course, I, I did what everybody do because I'm a normal person. I went to my doctor and I was like, I must have a thyroid problem. I must have a low metabolism. There's something wrong with me. So my doctor who, who's been my doctor for 20 something years, she was so gracious. She ran every single test and she's a great doctor. She stays up on things and she's like, your vitamin D is fine. Your testosterone is fine. She's like, so she just looks at me and she's like, well, Mubarka, I'm not really that concerned because everything in the test looks healthy. So this is just normal weight with age. But Mubarka does not accept that. <laughs> Some people age grace gracefully. I'm like, mm, we're going to have a fight. <laughs> I don't know if I'm willing to do all that. So, I'm, so in my mind, I'm like, okay, all of the tests came back fine. Then... Is something else happening? There's something else happening. So as I began um, just thinking about it and looking at myself, oop, I think, did I lose you? No, I'm here. Okay, all right, no worries. <laughs> so during this time, I just was like, there has to be another way. I was literally counting every calorie, every macronutrient, protein, fat, staying within. I was being consistent. I was exercising six days a week. And the scale would only incrementally budge. And so because I have a degree in exercise science and exercise and nutrition was actually one of the required course along the way of my degree, I still had my college books. And I went and I looked inside of the book and I found a very little chapter about ketogenic eating. And of course, it flew in the face of everything that we're taught as uh, personal trainers, as health coaches, right? Eat fat and don't eat grains, eat uh, meat and don't eat fruit. Like it was very, very strange. So I actually spent probably about a good six months looking into research studies before I decided to actually try it, right? Because we have been, they have done an, an excellent job in brainwashing us to the high carb, low fat lifestyle. And I started researching it and then I decided to try it. I also at the same previous, uh, a few months before I had started keto, I had already started doing some intermittent fasting. And so I created a program for myself and it worked wonderfully. I was literally eating the same amount of calories. I just shifted my macronutrient profile to a ketogenic profile and the weight began to fall off. Not only did the weight begin to fall off, but I began to have so much more mental clarity and focus and energy. I was absolutely enthralled. And so the first thing that I did is I said, okay, if this works for me, will it work for other women who are struggling? And so initially I just tried a beta group of about 40 women and 
discovered that not only did it work, but it not just helped women lose weight, it really improved their health. It decreased their A1C. I had women reporting that they had to go to the doctor because their high blood pressure medicine was working too well. And so the doctor is like, whatever you're doing, you don't need this medication anymore. And so as women began to come off their medications, they began to lose weight, they began to feel more confident, they began to reverse their diagnosis for PCOS, I became more committed to going against the grain and really teaching women how to practically apply a ketogenic and low carb lifestyle to not just lose weight, but to improve their overall health, right? And so for me, it's not just a weight loss coaching. It's not just a weight loss journey. It's about health improvement, right? It's about, you know, when you have PCOS, insulin resistant, which one in three American adults actually have insulin resistance. They estimate that 80% of people who are pre-diabetic and diabetic don't even know it, right? We're walking around here actually needing healing and not being aware of it because we think that it's normal for us to feel tired after we eat a meal. We think it's normal to have an afternoon slump. We think it's normal for women to have really heavy periods. All of these things are common, but they're not normal. And that is the shift. That's the mental shift that we need to make. Hold on. Yep. Can you hear me? I can. I, I we, we, we literally, I got, I got cut off and I don't know if it's my internet or what it is, but, uh, I got cut off from you. So ah, I apologize. It's, no it's, it's the beauty of, of all our abilities to do all of this. But um, uh, we're, we're, I just switched devices and I'm able to come on here without a problem. And we're still recording. So this is good. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so, so, and, and, I, and I've, I've switched a little bit. And this is the beauty of what we can all do in this business. So I'm... The, 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 and, and you were talking, and I apologize, I was streaming a little bit to get this set up. In your keto world, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and by the way, we, doctors still kick patients out of, of practices, by the way, which <laughs> I've never done it in 30 years of practice, and I will never do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm completely mystified by exactly why we do it, but, but we do it, unfortunately, because, we, we think, we somehow think the patients in whatever their, their disruliness is and not follow and not, they're not succeeding in what we've told them to do. And we blame them rather than us. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious what you think about that in our modern world and how, how so many people maybe are left out of the real health and wellness of the world because our culture sort of drives us all. And I know for myself, I'm 66. I started carnivore at 55. I was probably keto paleo at 45, but I didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, you know, I know for myself, I talked to a lot of people and how to move in this world. What do you think is, is people's real sort of understanding and what's the real hang up in helping 
everyone get to that need for health and wellness? Um, I th So the first part of your comment about doctors, I think that it is really a struggle with our healthcare system to separate itself from big pharma, separate itself from things that are more of a governmental interest as opposed to the interests of the health of people, right? And so I think that that's part, even as I, you know, I, I, I listen to various podcasts, right? I hear people say things, even, even researchers who talk about a ketogenic or low carb lifestyle, they will say, and I've been noticing this, I'm a certified doctor. So I have to say that lean grain, grains and lean meat is the best version of a health diet. I've literally heard people say that because their license depends on it, right? And so I think that we do need people who are, who are willing to combine medicine and nutrition. We are getting more people, um, yourself included, who are medically trained and then also become educated about nutrition. I think that part of it is this assumption that everybody makes that a doctor learns about nutrition in, in medical school. That I think that's the biggest myth that we have to overcome is like, well, my doctor said I should eat this. And I'm like, your doctor took one semester of one course. <laughs> Which was likely incorrect anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's well, not enough, and, and probably just learned that uh, every gram of carbs have four calories and every gram of that. <laughs> well, well, but you said you exercise tremendously. And I know how much you probably exercised during that time. And you lost 10 pounds. And so really what you learned is the standard exercise paradigm probably doesn't work. I think that not, I, I think that not only is it about exercise, but to me, it showed me that nutrition is king, right? If you're exercising until you're blue in the face, but your insulin level is skyrocketing because you're having toast every morning for breakfast and bread and sandwiches for lunch and rice for dinner, and you have insulin resistance or some form of insulin resistance, but your insulin is always high, it is going to make it much more difficult for the weight to come off because insulin is a fat storage hormone. If it is always up high, 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 your body is never going to get the signal, no matter how much you exercise, go ahead and, and let go of the fat, right? So this happens oftentimes when we follow the traditional advice. So have a small snack before you do your workout, right? Sending your insulin level skyrocket. Uh, eat three meals and two snacks a day. Insulin level all day, all the, way, all the way up there, all day long, right? All of that advice, I think, is what is harming people. And we really do need to, and my curiosity, and I have to say, I don't have an answer to this question is we have the research, like the information is there. 
Um, we just, it's, so, it's such a large majority of our medical community, our, um, those who are responsible for helping us understand health and wellness is just ignoring it. Do you think, so alcohol, cigarettes, and now marijuana mm -hmm. is sort of touted as good for you. <laughs> and the recent American Journal of OBGYN had an expert review of nutrition for mm -hmm. pregnant women and lactating women. And they recommended a Mediterranean diet which was three quarters full with carbohydrates because fruit, fiber, vegetables, seeds, and nuts are carbohydrates, mm -hmm. lean meat, no red meat. And then at the end, they recommended red wine. <laughs> and and, and uh, it can, maybe the problem is the same thing that why doctors used to promote cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And in some way we recommend a glass of wine or two a day because it's heart healthy. Mm -hmm. Are we really missing the whole point that our advice is actually completely wrong? I So my take on it is not necessarily that the, the advice is wrong. I think that the advice tries to coddle people. So this is what I have discovered in my career is oftentimes that we will get official recommendations, not necessarily solely based on the science, but based on what they think will practically be applied, right? And, and I say this having conversations. I actually live in New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale University is, and I've had the opportunity to train, talk, interview many Yale researchers. And I've, had, I've actually had a client who she literally was writing government policy around health and wellness. And this is something that multiple people have explained to me, that it's not just about the science. They may find something factually and scientifically correct, but they now have to put it in a recommendation that they feel that most people will be able to apply to their lifestyle. So I think it is, for me, what I look at when I give recommendations to a client is I expect you to want the best for yourself, right? I want it to be practical, but I'm not going to tell you that it's okay for you to drink wine or have a, a, a dessert every night just because you're like, oh, I have to have something sweet after dinner. Like we need to break that habit, right? And and I think what I get in in what I get in the most trouble for is telling people that moderation is not the key. <laughs> You're gonna have to give some stuff up, all right? Moderation is not the key if you wanna if you wanna heal yourself. Now, if you are perfectly healthy, you have no existing uh, or any risk factors, and you wanna moderate certain things in your life because you're training for a marathon or right. That's a very different circumstance than somebody that's overweight, which most Americans are, than somebody that has a diabetes or prediabetes, one in three American adults, than somebody that has PCOS, a growing concern for women of childbearing age, right? So those are the women who I focus on and I try to be really real with them is like, no, for you to heal yourself, moderation is not the key. 
You must choose foods based on your healing and your goals, not because you feel like, oh, I'm not going to be able to uh, have this anymore. What would you rather have, a food or PCOS? So it's, it's really finding ways to inspire the people that really want to change. It's, it's, it's like uh, an alcoholic lives at a liquor store and you're trying to get them off liquor, but you can't do it mm-hmm. because we go to the market for food and everything is calling us in very nice, heart healthy, uh, mm-hmm. good for you. And, and it really is we've made food entertainment. Yeah. Entertainment reward. <laughs> Entertainment reward. And then if we have something that's wrong, we feel like we're cheating. When, when in some ways, how do we motivate? How do you motivate your clients to make the change? I think that what I try to do with my clients is to educate them. I believe that that is a huge, I think, understanding how food and movement affects you on a physiological level is a motivator, right? Because what I'm telling you, you can physically feel, right? I've had so many clients is like, oh, we don't call them cheat days. We call them flex days. Somebody had a birthday. Oh, I flexed on my birthday. And immediately their response is, I felt horrible. I'm never doing that again, right? (laughs) And so they learn the lesson and they learn like what I'm telling you happens to your body on a physiological level, that is the motivator. And I think, I like to think that the biggest motivation is actually showing them how good they can feel. So we're talking a process of you can feel completely different within two weeks, right? First two weeks of my program, first three weeks rather of my program, the very first thing that I have people do before I even tell them to cut out carbs is cut out sugar. If you cut out sugar, then you're going to stop cravings. You're going to build a better relationship with food because you're not eating off of emotions. You're not eating because you're craving something. So when you look at food and you decide what you're going to eat, now you're saying, I am choosing food that's going to nourish my body, right? Because you're not being pulled into it. And I think the very first thing that people need to do is remove added sugar from your lifestyle, right? Once you do that, then it becomes much easier for you to eliminate the other things. It becomes easier for you to eliminate the grains and the fruits and to increase your protein, right? All of those take step by step for most people. But the first step is eliminating the sugar. I found in my experience in teaching women how to um, adopt a ketogenic lifestyle, people that go from, oh, the day before I start your program, I'm going to have some French fries, some rice, some cake, and then well, I'm starting keto tomorrow. They never, they don't stick to it. They do it for 40 days because it becomes a crash diet for them, right? But if you understand how this lifestyle can change you and understand that it is not a switch on, switch off shift, your hormones profile literally has to change. Insulin is a domino hormone. It triggers the upregulation or down and downregulation of over a dozen hormones. So it's not going to happen overnight and it needs consistency, right? When we're trying to get rid of, get it to lower an A1C, it's not about you kept your insulin low on Monday and Tuesday and then on Wednesday you had a cheat day and your insulin was off the chart. A1C gives you a cumulative score. That means you have to be consistent. 
So that that's what I think, that's what I hope is the biggest motivation for my clients is actually understanding the mm-hmm. physiology of how food and movement affects them. So that even after they're done coaching and they're trying to maintain on their own, they're not, uh, they're not lured with the shiny objects of, hey, do a 10-day juice fast because, you know, having nothing but fruit for 10 days will get rid of belly fat. They can say, eh, nah, I know that's going to raise my insulin. I ain't going for it, <laughs> right? They become educated, and that's the most important part to me. So, so tell us a little bit about your, your program and what are the things that you help people direct towards? And I want to ask a little bit about uh, testing, like uh, glucose monitoring and things like that. And do you incorporate that? Mm-hmm. So I help women to break sugar addiction, balance their hormones so that they can lose weight and, of course, live, show up happy and healthy in every aspect of their life. Right. So and I truly believe that model in terms of what my mission is. Um, so what I do in my program is I exclusively coach women and many of my clients are women with prediabetes, PCOS and type two diabetes. Mm. And so in that process, we off, we began with removing sugar and then I gradually take them into a ketogenic lifestyle and then show them how to maintain it to just, to not just achieve their goals short-term, but then maintain those goals along that process, right? Cause weight is just a symptom of what's going on in your body. It's not the ultimate goal. We, if a person enters my program and they are on a particular medication, most of my clients that come with a medication, their goal is to get off of it. And I am not a doctor and I always make that very clear. I do not have medical training. I do not de-prescribe any medication, but I help them get their health to a point where their doctor will de-prescribe the medication. And so that is often our goal. If we set a goal of um, to get an A1C down, then those are tests that are done with their doctor. And I often get a lot of pushback, you know, even from my own family member's doctor. As I told you, I have um, I'm number um, five of six children. I have several older sisters. Unfortunately, one of them has type two diabetes. The other my other sister She was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes last year and, of course, Mm -hmm. immediately called me and it's like, okay, I can't go down this route. (laughs) And her doctor went from trying to convince her not to follow my program to when she came back three months later to get another A1C, she asked her for my business card. (laughs) Because she literally went from an A1C of a 12 to a... 5.6 in three months following a ketogenic lifestyle. And so that is important. Of course, it's my sister. So it means even more to me, but when women, I actually just had a client that I did a check-in with two days ago who told me that her A1C is now pre-diabetic. She started my program with an A1C of 14 um, about a year ago, and she has gotten down to a 5.4 in her last test. And so that makes me, you know, with my 
my, the experience of my mom and how I grew up, that makes me, I love all my clients, but that's one of, of course, <laughs> one of the heartstring moments for me is when my clients tell me, my doctor took me off metformin. I started your program and taking five shots of insulin a day, and now I don't take any, right? Those are the results that I'm the most proud of because it shows that we have the ability to heal ourselves. We just have to know the protocol in order to do it. So you have one-on-one -on -one coaching and, and group coaching and you you're in the social media world today and you, okay. you, you've gone to the white house, Oprah Winfrey and many other really amazing things. So what's your mission in, in this? What is my mission? So my elevator speech is to create a healthier world one woman at a time. But I truly believe if you ask me what, uh, what I want to achieve is I would love to show a million women that they have the ability, they have the right to show up the healthiest, happiest version of themselves in every aspect of their life. And the most selfless thing you can do is to be selfish about your health. Mm. That is the most important thing for me. And particularly it's a struggle with women and moms and the people that I deal with um, because we are told that to be a good wife, daughter, mother, we need to give all of ourselves, and we save nothing mm. to actually replenish our own cup. So that is really my mission. So not just physical, but physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, right? Because it's not just about weight loss. It's not just about fitting into a size jeans, right? It is an all-encompassed holistic lifestyle, right? I, my, my thing that I remind women is that fitness is not a look. It's a state of being healthy and strong. Looking good is just a side effect, right? So we want to focus on the healthy and strong. So it's, it's really internal. And as we say on an airplane, they remind you, put your mask on first so you can help the next person. So, and, and women, as you said, moms, especially, and wives, they sacrifice for so much. Mm -hmm. And, and you're, you're, you're showing them an example and inspiring them to improve their lives so they can improve their families' lives. Absolutely. That's really critical. And, and tell us a little bit about, because... I talk a lot about faith and spirituality and, and God. And I think it's critical because we don't do it in Western medicine enough. In my opinion, most human beings believe in God and they may not use the same language, but there's a higher power. Uh, how do you incorporate that into your, your fitness uh, life, fitness travels? So for me, I incorporated into that your wellness is, phys is physical, mental, and spiritual. And physical, mental, and spiritual well-being is intertwined. The weakness of one weakens them all, and the strengthening of one strengthens them all. So whether I'm dealing with a client who's Muslim like I am or non-Muslim, and most of my clients, as you said, are spiritual women, we understand that 
all of those are integrated into one another. So if fasting, and I've had reports of this from clients who are not Muslim, I feel so much more spiritually grounded when I'm fasting. And that's a win. When I ask you, tell me what your win was this week, and you tell me you felt spiritual grounded or spiritually grounded, or you were inspired to go back to church or go back to the mosque, right? All of those are wins in your health and wellness journey. It's not just about the scale went down a point, right? Mm-hmm. Because all of that is going, they're all integrated into our body. I remind people who are Muslim is you can't bow down if you can't get down. Mm-hmm. So if your physical well-being is connected to your spiritual well-being, if you're not taking care of yourself mentally, then that is going to affect your physical and your spiritual. When you can strengthen one muscle, physical, mental, or spiritual, it's going to give you both the strength and the motivation to, to strengthen the others, right? So if you're tired all the time, right, how are you going to exercise or even do more worship or go out. And and sometimes it's not even about the physical worship. It is we all believe in a in a need and a requirement to serve humanity, right? Are you the one that's going to serve or be served? Right. And that is really an important aspect of our both mental and our spiritual health, right? To be able to go out and do more for the world, whether that's your your serving at a soup kitchen or spreading a health and wellness message in a in a in a in a coaching service. So I think that that's really important for people to understand that they're all intertwined with one another. And your your books. Tell us a little bit about your your books. Uh, you're rewriting a book. And you've got a number of books out. Tell us how that inspires you and and helps others in in this journey. So I am rewriting the the original book for my uh, protocol, which is called the MR40 Method, Metabolic Reset in 40 Days. I wrote it about what I, this is the program that I originally wrote. They got me results and the first group of women, and I've been teaching it for five years and I've learned so much that I want to really incorporate that, incorporate some of my success stories um, inside of the book, incorporate more information for people to be able to practically apply the method to their lifestyle. And so I go on and kind of like, uh, um, I don't want to say ramble on my social media, but really kind of talk out the rewriting process with everybody every Tuesday. Um, and I'm looking forward to actually adding and enhancing the book because it is definitely a very effective protocol. And, and where can they find your books, by the way? So that the MR40 method can be purchased on Amazon, right? So you can either look up my name or you can look up the MR40 method and it can be purchased there. Um, If you're interested in being notified of the uh, rewrite, you can certainly join my email list at fitmuslima.com and uh, you'll be notified as we publish, hopefully in the spring. And what about children in, in, in all of this? So we're inspiring moms and, and women 
And what do we do for our children? Because that's really, you know, we have to change what's going on for our children. Mm -hmm. One of the, I think one of the, the benefits that I look at for inspiring women is that women are the first nutrition teachers of children, right? So statistically, even in a two-parent household, 80% of those households, the women do the shopping and the cooking. Not getting into gender roles. That's just the statistics, right? So if we can educate women, if we can get women to be more conscious of the nutrition choices that they're making for themselves, they're going to be more conscious of the nutrition choices that they're making for their families. What I often remind women is what you teach your child now is what's going to affect them in 40 years. We have to start now whether your kid is two or 15, you have to start setting them up in a way that they aren't looking for a coach because they have diabetes at 40, right? We have to start teaching them that you don't need to have a sandwich every day, right? Some days it's okay to not have a sandwich, to eat the meat and eat the vegetables and just avoid the sandwich. We have to stop rewarding children with food, right? That I think is going to, can make a huge impact because that is an issue that most people have. Like food is a reward. I had a great day. Hey, let's go get some cake, right? Oh, we had a great day at an office. Let's go out to dinner, right? So that's often a thing that we have to reverse, reverse at as adults. And I remind parents like you can, actually identify the things that are that your habits that makes it the most challenging for you to to lose weight or to reverse your diabetes how can you prevent your kids from developing those challenges start super young and with children particularly with young children you normalize nutrition like i have a granddaughter who is two years old and um, very grateful that her mom is very nutritionally conscious. And when she comes over, she's like, Gemma, I love water. <laughs> and I was like, really? She's like, yes. And so I give her water and she's like, ah. <laughs> because she had, that is what drink is, right? And so when she does see something sweet, she's like, what's that, right? And even before, you know, I have four children, by the way. Thank goodness they are all grown adults and now giving me grandbabies. <laughs> but <laughs> um, it's something that I really try to implement myself. So I speak from experience, right? So before I... When they were younger, I wanted to decrease. When I started really realizing what sugar does to the body, you know, I had young children and I'm like, mm. and it's so funny. My son tells a story about how um, the first time he had full juice. So a tip for moms, how to get your kids to stop drinking juice. I did this. I promise you it works. First, you decrease it by half. Water, juice. And then about every couple of weeks, you just put more water and less juice. And my son laughs. He's 26 now. And he says that, um, you know, my kids, they literally used to ask me, mommy, can I have some water juice? 
because that's what we ate in our house. That's what we drank in our house, right? That, that was normal for them. And he, at 26, still remembers when he went to his aunt's house and he said that he was about eight years old and he asked her for some water juice and she gave him full juice. And he was like, oh, mommy's been lying to me this whole time. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was the first time he ever actually tasted undiluted juice. He was like, he was so shocked. <laughs> we're, 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 addicting our children at such a young age mm -hmm. and and uh, water is our traditional drink for thousands if not millions of years Absolutely. and and with and I know I grew up drinking coke and Pepsi and all those things there was never like it was it was okay even though my sister was in the house she couldn't drink it yeah, but she had many other things that I would say probably weren't so good either. <laughs> uh, pregnant women, uh, do you do you also coach pregnant women uh, in this and and breastfeeding women? And do you have any advice for those women that are pregnant or soon to be pregnant or hoping to be pregnant? So I don't. I don't coach pregnant women, right? So, and, and this is probably to my disadvantage because this year it has been, um, it has been my biggest problem. <laughs> women getting pregnant during my program. <laughs> that well, is actually, that is actually how I found you. That is actually how I found you. I had one, it was a, I had uh, like 30 women who joined my three month coaching program. And within that three months, I believe four of them got pregnant and two of the, and normally when they get pregnant, I'm like, Oh, maybe we want to pause, you know, until you, and two of them were like, no, I had gestational diabetes with my last pregnancy. My doc, their doctor actually had said it was okay. And she said that, you know, long as you eat, one participant, she said that her doctor told her, as long as you eat 50 grams of carbs a day, you should be okay. So you can continue doing what you're doing. It helped you lose weight. You're now, and you know what's the best part about her is that she had been on my, in my program, I believe about two and a half months. She was having a difficult time getting pregnant. She had PCOS and she went to take to her first fertility appointment at the fertility clinic. And she informed the doctor that she had missed her period again. And they were like, because you're pregnant. <laughs> and that was awesome. So actually how I actually first got introduced to you is when my clients began to tell me like, no, they want to continue uh, the program and low carb eating while they're pregnant. I was like, let me find somebody that coach on fertility, keto, pregnancy. And I started listening to podcasts and you kept coming up. <laughs> and that's actually how I started following you. And so I started sending your stuff to my clients and I was like, you got to follow this guy. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, well, it's, I learned this, all this from patients that I used to do a lot of spirituality and meditation and yoga and things like that. And a number of my patients about 15, 20 years ago were getting pregnant on paleo diets. 
Mm. I'm like, okay, what's paleo diet? And what do you mean you're getting pregnant without me? And, and, you know, so you, you know, we come to me, we do these things and it just happens sometimes, but not on a diet. Mm. And so I jumped into paleo, then keto. And then I, 12 years ago, almost went carnivore. Mm. And, and my, my current experience, knowledge, and belief is that keto carnivore fasting is critical throughout pregnancy and throughout mm. your breastfeeding, throughout your life. And my, my next question for you was about, about sustainability. And I have my opinions, but the other thing I've realized is that, that we doctors in Western medicine are f like, for me, it's like, I mean, all I ever talk about now is nutrition 99% of the time, because mm -hmm. I know for the majority of my patients, other those that you know, no tubes or they, they simply go keto or carnivore with some fasting in it, they'll like, you know, get pregnant so much more readily and they'll, they'll reduce the risk of miscarriage and they'll reduce the risk of things like birth, birth defects or, or non-genetic defects and also autism, mm -hmm. which is, was, is rampant these days. Right. To I totally, totally uh, believe that. I think that, um, it can make a huge difference on children with autism. Uh, now more and more adults are saying that they have ADHD, right? So it makes a huge, huge difference with that. And I always, uh, you know, remind women that this is a lifestyle. This is not a crash diet. This is, and that's why it's important to, for them to know, like, these foods are affecting your hormones and your metabolism this way, whether you need to lose weight or not, right? This is the way that, that and uh, I, when it comes to things like eating high carb food, even eating things like honey and drinking juice, right? People will insist, but it's natural, right? I'm like, it's still making your insulin level skyrocket, right? Whether you need to lose weight or not, your insulin level is a key domino hormone. So when you think about how am I going to sustain this, I probably have more of probably a hardcore uh, philosophy about sustaining. I believe people sustain what they want to sustain, right? So particularly, and it maybe it has to do with the fact that Muslims do give up a lot of things, right? And I always and I tell people, um, and I and I had a client who related it to converting to Islam, right? Who thought like her family was like, how are you going to give up pork? She decided to, and she did, <laughs> right? When you decide you want to do people who are alcoholics, they think, oh, how am I, how are you going to give up alcohol? You have a friend that's a doubter. Oh, he's going to go back to drinking again, right? But when you decide and you commit to improving your life, you do it. And I have confidence in the determination of the human spirit. I don't believe um, sustaining something is as difficult as people make it out to be. I think it's about making a choice, making a choice that's based on your health and your well-being, not what somebody else thinks. I think our biggest problem with sustaining healthy lifestyle is this idea that we have to be accepted by others, right? Even if it's detrimental to our own health, we have to be accepted and we have to do the same thing as other people are doing, right? Even though you know that 
you're going to be in a sugar coma if you sit there and you eat all that food, <laughs> but you're going to do it anyway, right? So when you create a, 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 a solid mindset and knowledge base about your own personal health, you decide and it becomes sustainable because your health is the most sustainable habit that you can make. And there's only one person responsible for that. Yep. Only one person responsible and it's only one body. Oftentimes, you know, especially in these times, I have women inside of my program and, you know, women sign up for a year and a year, a lot of things can happen. You know, family members die. Um, several women get COVID. They, COVID comes and goes on everybody now, <laughs> right? And they have all of these issues. And I remind them that people will die. Babies will be born, people will graduate, people will move in and out, you'll become sick, you'll become well. And the only common thread in all of those things that happen in life is you have one body to get you through everything. So you have to take care of that body because that is the only thing that is getting you through it. So it's be consistent and committed to yourself. Mindset. Absolutely. And, and I found that faith and spirituality, religion is a very critical component because religion is actually our culture. Human culture is religion. And just like we may not like our parents or our family or our teachers or our religions, they're mm -hmm. still our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think for me, spirituality is literally the crux and foundation of everything that I do, right? I think that we have an obligation. In Islam, we believe that when we finally meet our maker, one of the questions that he's going to ask us is, what did you do with the health that I gave you, right? Mm -hmm. That's an important question that you're going to have to answer it is the body that God gave you is the tool that you use to get through this world, right? So just like a mechanic, if a mechanic has a tools and he lets them rust, he leaves them out in the rain, right? He can fix the car. He can, we can hobble through life with, with broken and, and being ill, but it's not going to take, be as efficient. It's not going to get the job done properly. You got to take care of the tool that God gave you to get through life, right? So that that tool, your body can help you do those things in an efficient manner so that you can live a happy, healthy life, right? Because if you're constantly in aches, pains, suffering from disease, have to, you know, some of the things that my clients talk about is having to curtail their activities or not go someplace because their medication is due at that time or not being able to do something because they know that they will physically be more tired or there'll be a burden to the group of friends that they go through, right? That, that's not a way of living a fulfilled life. You should have the physical ability to live the life that you desire. So really it's about inspiration and inspiring one ourselves, mm. we have to be inspired to do the work to help others and, and then give them the tools to do that. First in the word mm -hmm. and then in what they put in the mouth. 
mm-hmm. and the marination and movement of their bodies. Absolutely. So ra- rather than living in an amusement park where we're encouraged to have too many meals in a day, mm-hmm. and we're encouraged to drink drug, alcohol and, and sodas and sweet things, and which, which if you maybe looked at them and say, from time to time, there was a celebration. And you could celebrate life every day, but it wasn't meant to be an amusement park. Right. It was meant to be the temple. Right, right, right. I think that our issue with the way that we celebrate today is that we celebrate mediocrity and we have to remove ourselves from that. We are meant to be amazing. We are not meant to be mediocre. Right. We have a we have this this, I think, more of an epidemic of celebrating mediocrity. Right. You get done with your work week at a job you hate. And so you spend the weekend eating, drinking just to go back to a job you hate. You're celebrating mediocrity. Right. Live a life by design. Decide what you want to do create the mindset around achieving that thing, get the plan and then get it done. We deserve to live the life that we desire that fulfills us. Do you have any particular inspiring books or uh, anyone that you love to listen to or read that can help some of our listeners and watchers to get some of the same inspiration? So some of the things that I really, when it comes to... um, health. So if I can think of it in categories, um, one of the books that really helped me understand sort of things holistically is um, The Circadian Cold by Dr. Um, um, Sachin Panda, an excellent, excellent book if you want to know about how food and sleep and and um, intermittent fasting actually affects you on a physiological level and how you can transform your life by living intuitively with the with nature. I think that that's kind of like the, the, the crux of that book. Um, another book that I think that is a, a really big inspiration to me um, in terms of nutrition, um, I would say, oh, wow. Let's see, in terms of nutrition, I think that's like a, a really main book for me. The, mm-hmm. When it comes to sort of like work ethic and things like that, I love the, um, what is the name of his book? Seven Habits of Highly Successful People by, by Stephen Covey. I love that book. I think that um, I probably read that about three or four times. <laughs> we did that on, on our meetup last uh, two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah book a week and that was one of them okay yeah that that's a great great yeah. book um there is another book that i think that is oh what is it called it's called willpower the last um in i think it's the subtitle is the last indomitable human strength that is an excellent excellent book that talks about how nutrition actually affects us mentally and affects our mood it's a really great book as well um so those are some of the things that come to mind um right off the back of my head three books that i often are recommending to people uh to read 
And, and uh, any other ideas that I haven't brought up that you think are really important and you're like, oh, he didn't ask me that. Um, <laughs> Say this. I think, so one, so when it comes to starting, right? A lot of people often are just like, there's so much information. I don't know where to start, right? I have kind of a three level process. When it comes to your health and nutrition, it is about when, what, how. Intermittent fasting is the default. If you don't know where to start, start by eating less and eating less often, right? That is the default. I'm constantly reminding people like, you're not ready for keto, that's fine, right? Start off by eating less and eating less often. Stop mm -hmm. eating three meals and two snacks a day. I think that's like so detrimental to health. I wish I could just erase that from people's memory. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that is the win. We know from research studies inside of the book I previously mentioned, the circadian code and studies of animals, like even when eating a standard American diet, but doing it on a time-restricting eating schedule, all the diseases were avoided and some reverse just by doing intermittent fasting, even when they weren't eating healthy. So when you eat is the most impactful thing of your health. Then once you have pretty much made a habit of when you eat and improving on that, then it's the what. How many carbs, protein, and fats are you eating, right? This is where you start doing macronutrient manipulation. So this is probably 80% of the work that I do with my clients, mm -hmm. macronutrient manipulation. Once you've done that and you have restored your health, then the how much comes into play, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the how many calories you're eating, that's way down the road when you're already optimized and now you're looking to take your fitness to another level. Most people, I would say 90% of people, they need to start with the when and the what. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that is the very best advice because I always say one meal a day at night is the very best way. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what your food is. You do it one time only and you can do it in the morning, the afternoon, but best is at night personally. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, and then from there you could begin to adjust whether you're vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean or carnivorian, you could begin to adjust those, those, those macros. And I remind everyone, there's no requirement to ever eat a carbohydrate, even when you're pregnant, none. Yeah. And like, that's like, no, really? People get mad at me when I tell them carbohydrates are not an essential nutrient. They are not. Yes, I know. <laughs> like, I know. oh, what eat? And I have, and I always have to dispel this myth with my, even with my own clients, they will come in the program and they will say, well, if I don't eat at least a little bit of brown rice a day, I'm not, my, my digestive system is going to mess up. Right. And then I have to pull out a half an avocado has more fiber than a half a cup of rice, right? And then I have to go all of like, there's so many other ways for you to get fiber. You do not have to eat rice. You do not have to eat bread. Like carbohydrates are not essential. And particularly once your body converts into fat burning metabolism, right? 
Once you're actually metabolically flexible, you will have enough energy. You will have everything that you need. I know I personally experience this. So a new, so you didn't ask me about this, but I'll brag a little bit. <laughs> so I I, Whatever I said, I want to hear it. That's why we're here today. So I, I talked to you a little bit earlier about how, you know, I like to set new challenging goals for myself. And so when I was 40, I decided to get army fit. Well, at 46, I decided to become a power lifter. <laughs> I did see that. That's pretty, like, I look at that. I'm like, I'm not touching that. So I decided to become a power lifter and it's been a really interesting journey because, you know, for me, it was a sort of, okay, let me be open to this new health and wellness. And of course, the first advice I got was you absolutely have to eat more carbohydrates. And I will be completely honest. I tried it for 30 days. I was like, okay, if this is what you, I need to do in order to be as strong as I can, I'm actually doing a competition next month, my first competition. And um, I felt horrible <laughs> and I was always hungry. And I was like, now I remember, now I remember why I went keto. <laughs> and so I went back to what I know and I've been, uh, been able to continue to become stronger and be consistent in my workout, eating a low carbohydrate diet, right? So what some of the adjustments that I've made is like, now I do have berries more often, maybe two days a week instead of, you know, having it once a month or things like that. But it's certainly possible for you to be, get stronger, to get fitter on a low carb diet. And that is certainly a myth when inside of the fitness community that you have to have carbs to lift weights, right? I actually am my strongest because I am fat adapted. I am my strongest when I don't eat before a workout. So I can go and do a two hour workout session, drinking water and some branch chains. And I'm, I hit my personal PR the other day of being able to deadlift 305 pounds. So <laughs> I'm really happy with both my nutrition and my progress in terms of strength. And I'm able to do that with a low carb lifestyle. Wow. Any any thoughts, comments on the carnivore lifestyle? So yeah. I think that with every lifestyle, so I personally don't do carnivore, I do eat vegetables. <laughs> yeah, I just want to get your take on it, where, where you're at in your conversation with your clients. So most of my clients aren't really familiar with carnivore, so it's not a conversation that I have that often, but I think that it's appropriate for people that it works for. I think every diet, I tell people, eat according to your health and your goals, right? Even when it comes to following a ketogenic lifestyle, like initially when it came to keto, I was super, super like by the book keto. And then I began to do macronutrient manipulation because I may have a client who is an administrator and she sits at a desk all day and she has diabetes and she needs to be completely keto, like 20 grams of carbs. But then I might have another client who is a surgeon and she's on her feet and she's walking around all day and we need to adjust that because she's easily going to burn it and she's doing workouts every single day, right? And so she may not need to only have 20 grams of carbs. She may need, she may be able to actually be in ketosis at a 10 or 15% carbohydrate rate, right? So it 
it, it, it changes based on a person's health, based on their current health, their goals, and their lifestyle. And so that's why I give all of my clients a custom macronutrient profile, because all of those things matter. So if you and some clients sometimes and I've actually, um, you know, encouraged clients like if you're eating 5% of your diet from um, from carbohydrates, and you still can't get into ketosis, your body may need to go carnivore for a little while, right? So it really is about learning what works for your body and your stage of your journey. So you mentioned fasting. Do you typically really work to get your clients to a narrower window? Is that the, the part that you really work on and keep them there? Uh, so, so my fasting protocol comes in sort of like three phases mm -hmm. for people entering my program who has never tried intermittent fasting before I start them off with 12 hours. And my philosophy is even if your goal is only to maintain your optimal health that you're experiencing, you still need a 12 hour window. That's the minimum for that research showed us shows us for all human beings, right? So this is regardless of what your goal is. So we start at 12 hours and then we start taking it back little by little. Many women who, uh, who, um, who enter my program follow me on social media a lot. So most of them are already starting to intermittent fast just from the advice that I give. So the way that my protocol works is that during the weight loss phase, right? We do 16, eight, five days a week, and then two non-consecutive days, we do a 20 hour fast. Wow. And the reason that is, is because research shows that there's this sweet spot in fat burn in lipolysis. When they look at specifically how the body burns fat during a fast between hours 18 and 24. So you're burning fat, but between hours 18 and 24, there is a steep spike where it goes up. So if you can last up to 20 to 24 hours, you can sort of, it's sort of like biohacking, right? We can take advantage of that, but I don't recommend that people do that on a daily basis from a practical level. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I have experienced with my clients is it is absolutely possible for people to get themselves down to only one meal a day. But for the women that I deal with, long term, it ends up backfiring because that one meal is not nutrient dense. They think, oh, I'm only eating one meal. Now I can pile everything and they're not conscious of I have to make sure that I get enough nutrients in this meal. And so long term, doing that three, four, five months, then they're, oh, I'm tired of doing this. I'm going to, and they just want to throw everything out the window, right? So I think that for my women doing 16, eight, five days a week, and then two days a week doing that 20 hour fast. So that's sort of like, so phase one would be the 12 hour fast. Um, phase two, which is where you get into really serious focusing on the health benefits of fast is 16, eight, and then two 20 hour days. And then once you get to a maintenance state, so this means we're no longer overweight, we're now setting other fitness goals, then instead of a daily fast, you do a minimum of two 20 hour fasts a week. Mm -hmm. So even for myself, my, uh, uh, my goal 
every week is to do at least two days of a 20 hour fast. I tend to, I'm honestly more out of habit. <laughs> I don't really eat breakfast. Um, so most days I'm doing a 16 hour fast, but I really intentionally try to do a 20 hour fast twice a week. And do you also uh, provide with, with shopping lists and, and, and also some menus to help people through the transition to get to really the important part of, of the how? So what I, so I don't do shopping lists, but I do do food lists. And the reason why I don't do shopping lists is because my clientele is literally women from all over the world. I may have 30 women from eight different countries, right? And so what's in the grocery store down the street for me is not in France, right? Good point. Good point. Right? So what I supply people with is we have a very clear protocol list of foods, green lists, you eat abundance of those foods. Yellow lists, we're gonna minimize. Red lists, do not eat those. So everybody gets a food list. So no matter where you are in the world, you can apply it to your life. So today, uh, a woman in Ethiopia joined me, right? And she's like, well, will I be able to do the list? I'm like, if you got protein and you got vegetables, you'll be able to eat, <laughs> right? <laughs> I do give a menu and meal plan, um, but I don't, require my clients to follow exactly that because I said, you know, eat collard greens for dinner on Thursday, then you have to have collard greens on Thursday. But if you normally eat kale or mustard greens and you want to try something new because you need some variety, I have a recipe for you, right? If you want to try something new for breakfast, here are some options. I, when I initially started my program, I actually didn't give a menu and meal plan. But what I found was that Women actually joined the program and because we are so used to have whole grains for breakfast, they were like, what do I eat other than oatmeal? Like, like they literally just would have brain freeze of, I don't know what to have if I can't have my raisin bran in the morning, right? And so that's when I started actually supplying a full menu and meal plan for each phase of my program because really a lot of people don't know what a healthy meal looks like. They really, we still think it is the Kellogg's commercial of cereal, milk, orange juice, and toast, right? That is really such a pervasive belief that if someone takes those things away, it's like, what else can I have? And so that's the reason why I give a lot of variety of delicious meals that don't keep you in the kitchen all day because I don't even like being in the kitchen all day. <laughs> Real food, not boxed, bagged, and and processed to the point it's made in an industrial uh, uh, chemical uh, uh, center. It's made by nature. I tell women that if you have to flip the product over to read the nutrition label, then you probably either shouldn't have that food or minimize it. Because if it has the nutrition label, that means it's been processed. <laughs> so you likely inspire so many women to improve their health and wellness. And I'm sure they're working to, to increase their, their family's health and wellness. What about the, where, where do you send their, 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 the men to? Uh, do you have someone you're inspired to send them to, uh, or are you creating another uh, idea? Or they can read the book too. 
So the men have to listen to their wives. <laughs> That's actually the best men, men have to listen to their wives. wives. And I have several, several women who join is like, I just, I, and my husband has diabetes and I want like, and I do, I have women who join and they will join with the concern of their child being, you know, I had one client and her 13 year old son was diagnosed as pre-diabetic and she just felt like a failure as a mom. She was like, I, she's like, not only that, what she told me was not only did she fail at keeping him healthy, but she's failed because she didn't know how to help him. And mm -hmm. that was really powerful, right? And so her goal throughout my coaching program was not only to, uh, you know, lose weight herself, but to be able to understand how she needs to feed her kids. And so in that process, not only did she lose weight, but her son lost weight. But the good thing, the greatest thing about it is that when she fell off the wagon for a couple of days, her son literally said, mom, when are you going to cook another healthy meal for us? <laughs> so he began to remind her. And so those things are how we literally change families, communities, and the world. Mubaraka Ibrahim. It's a fit. Muslima. Muslima. Yes. And everyone, I am so inspired by your energy, your dedication to help women and families around the globe. It is so important because we're, we're missing something in this world and we need to bring everyone up. Every human being has the right uh, to find that health and wellness that God has gifted them with this beautiful human body. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you do for incorporating both physical and spiritual and mental wellness together. It's so important that we look at ourselves as whole beings and not just one thing. So thank you for your work. Inshallah, it's so important for each of us to see God in each of us. And when we do that, I think we'll bring that uh, to more people around the globe. And that's that's what this really journey. And as a physician now, I realize I can see 20 people in my office today, but I can see 20,000 or 2 million or 20 million people. And that's really where, when we find something that works, that you don't need a drug or a dissection or a doctor to manage your diseases any longer. They, they go away when you, heat, when you eat and consume like a human being should. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Go back to at the very minimum, we should go back to when we were all farmers and we raised and grew everything that we consumed at the very minimum. <laughs> since, since we're able to sort of edit this in so many ways, what's your thoughts uh, on ultimately our evolution is hunters out of Africa mm. and, and we've been conscripted into the armies, the peasantry, the uh, slavery, and um, uh, soldiers, soldiers, or oh, prisoners mm. around the globe. And how do we get back to our ancient heritage, which was a hunter with some gathering? And, mm. and we really, I mean, I think that's where our villages really, and that's where in some ways, we all have a village, a family, and maybe a little bit of a village, but we're in such constraints of, of domestication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that for 
for us in terms of getting back, the first thing that we have to do is educate ourselves on our history, right? So as an African-American, this has been sort of a, uh, a life mission and passion for myself. But I think that this is something that is super um, uh, common for many people not to know sort of not just our own personal history, but the history of human evolution, right? So people are often um, um, misguided to, I don't, you can edit this if you want, but like, no, being, no, I, this like, is like being vegan, like historically human beings were never vegan, right? So we need to understand our history on this earth, understand our history within communities. And we can't reverse or take ourselves back once we have now become a modern industrial nation um, or, or nations. But what we can do is we can really be more conscious of how what we have now in terms of technology is changing everything about our lifestyle, right? So even the idea of people in Alaska can have oranges in the middle of winter, right? The, this is not the way people in Alaska are supposed to be eating because you're able to do this. And, and to be quite frank, the idea of being vegan is a modern day privilege because if you only were able to eat the foods that you grew in terms of vegetables and grain, you will, you will eventually become deficient and you will not be able to survive. There is literally an um, William Price, right? If uh, he... He actually was the first holistic view of nutrition that I ever read. And he was actually a dentist. Are you familiar with William Price? Yes, Weston Price. Yes. Weston Price. Weston yes. Price. yes. Um, and as he began to see how the difference just within generations of people, right? People, grandparents who ate traditional food versus their grandkids who now ate the Western type diet and grains and how it literally changed the way their teeth formed and their, the formation of their jaw, right? All of these things are important for us to be conscious of. And so one of the things that I think that we can do, even though, again, we can't reverse time and I don't think any of us wants to go and live the way that we lived before cars or technology or transportation, but we can be just very consciously aware of what we're consuming, how we're consuming and how we're interacting, right? So just on a very simplistic level, I tell people like, think about if you had to grow this thing, would you consume it, one, would you consume as much or as often as you are consuming it, number two, right? If you actually had to grow the amount of almonds you needed in order to drink almond milk every single day, it would not be practical lifestyle as a farmer, right? So we have to think about that. Even when it comes to movement, if we think of ourselves in villages, we picked up heavy things, in an intermittent fashion 
And then every so often we had to go to a long village, which was a long, steady endurance um, activity, right? So pick up heavy things in an intermittent fashion and periodically do long, slow cardio because that is what we are built to do, right? When it comes to living, a, a, for lack of better terms, natural lifestyle. So I think that it's important that we understand that and like really start reflecting on how we're doing things. And one of the issues we have just in general in Western society is we take one things and we just go crazy with it, right? Oh, Asian people eat soy and tofu. So let's make everything into tofu. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, historically, we likely didn't eat as much as we do and frequently. And we likely ate the organ meats, the bone marrow, the bone broth, the fat. And, and, likely, but if you go to, you know, indigenous villages, they still eat those things, right? They still could because. If that is what you have to sustain yourself, those are the things that are going that you're going to use as much of the animal as you possibly can. So for me, I always tell people uh, and, and people laugh a little bit. And I was like, this is the reason why we're meant to bite things. I never tell a client to have a protein shake instead of a meal, have a green smoothie for breakfast. God gave us teeth, bite something. <laughs> there is literally a physiological and uh, an enzymatic way in which biting food actually affects us. When we bite food, it literally releases enzymes that's digested with the food that actually improves our gut microbiome. That does not happen when you're drinking your calories. That does not happen drinking a smoothie or a juice or any, you have to physically bite food. There are a tremendous increase in maternal mortality uh, over the last few years in America, mm. especially in women of color. Mm. Uh, and, and I believe socioeconomically that ultimately, and, 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 and basically the foods that are least expensive, although maybe that's not so true, maybe it's marketed us marketed to us in a way that we think it is but ultimately it turns not to be because we get sicker uh and and fatty meat is actually a lot more affordable than people even know what can you know i know as a physician uh we just had a woman a 45 a heart attack she didn't we had a woman a couple of years ago that died of a heart attack uh during covid another blood clot during covid and we're all trying to sort of understand what's going on in our, in the U.S. especially, where maternal mortality is going up. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on that? So I do. I have several thoughts on it, I think. But my thoughts are not nutrition-based. So here's some, some, some kind of like history of, of where my thinking process mm -hmm. So I had the opportunity and indeed a pleasure to be the head of a um, women and girls, um, the women's department for uh, patient services at Yale Hospital. And our job as the head of that committee was literally to inform doctors in ways to improve the services of the hospital that can help improve the lives of women. 
A part of that, I had the opportunity to go to trainings, to be on diversity boards around, um, um, to advise the medical community. And one of the things that we know about um, the mortality of Black women that is certainly race-related, right? And it certainly has to do with the experience of Blackness in America. So there's one particular study that literally looked at the maternal rate of Africans for who lived in Africa and then moved to America and the maternal rate of their children, right? And so the interesting thing that was found is the maternal, the, the death rate of, uh, of African immigrant women to America, their mortality rate during childbirth was the equivalent of white women in America. But their, the maternal death rate of their children were the same as black women in America. So it was the experience of growing up in America that changed and shifted this dynamic. And it, I'm sure we have a lot of things that we can say about nutrition in the black community, about nutrition in poor communities um, that could contribute to it, but we certainly cannot remove the experience of blackness, right? So there's a great documentary and I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but I will certainly get, get it to you. And one of the series of this documentary, it talked about, um, it interviewed a lawyer, mm -hmm. uh, African-American woman who was a lawyer in Washington, D.C. She was, I believe she was the DA, actually. She wasn't just a lawyer. And she had several miscarriages, right? And one of the things that the documentary talked about is how just the experience of Blackness in America, Black people tend to have higher amounts of cortisol in our system, huh. just from the experience of being Black. Hmm. And then when black women get pregnant, cortisol goes up even more. Uh -huh. And so that puts them at a greater risk of miscarriages. And in her story, she talked about how, you know, she graduated from an Ivy League school. She lives in a wealthy community. But when she gets on an elevator at the courthouse with a white person, they still grab their pocketbook. They have no idea who she is. They just see her as a black woman. And having those experiences on a daily basis certainly will impact our health. So the mental, physical, and spiritual health of Black people in America certainly has a lot more to contend with, right? So this is a, this is a conversation that we often have, right? The, the self-care that Black people have to do because we contend with certain things. So I think that is one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is certainly the, the, um, um, the discrimination and the bias inside of the medical system, right? So everybody has implicit biases. And we know that within the medical community, there's actually a pervasive thought of things like Black people are more, can tolerate more pain, right? So this is often something that is shown that happens to women after they give birth, where their report of pain or discomfort is not taken as seriously as other races. And mm -hmm. it comes 
from an unconscious bias for many doctors that Black people can experience more pain or that we're not being completely truthful, that Black people are dramatic, right? All of these are um, implicit biases that people have and doctors are people. And so that results in people, for example, Serena Williams, right, who, uh, who reported feeling not taking being not taken seriously. And she's Serena Williams. right? She's Serena Williams. So if she can make a complaint and not being taken seriously, like we are really hesitant. Right. I have two daughter-in-laws. They are both due in the next 30 days. I have mm -hmm. one due any day and another one that's due November 26. They both made the decision to have their babies at home and at a birthing center. They will not go to a hospital. My daughter-in-law that has that's due next month, her first child was born at home. I had the pleasure of being there to watch her be born. She's having another baby. She's going to have him at home, right? She has a nurse midwife that's going to come to the house and deliver the baby. And this is conversations that we have in our family. And so they made these very conscious decisions dependent on that. Then the third layer around a mortality of Black women is that even if, like myself, you've had the opportunity of having a Black physician or a Black midwife, the, uh, the racism and the bias against them tends to leak down, right? So I know from my own personal experience, when I gave birth to my daughter, I had a midwife who was African-American and um, the nurses working underneath her was white nurses. Unfortunately, and we still don't know why, after I gave birth to my daughter, I started to hemorrhage, right? So, so much I started going in and out of consciousness and the nurse, the, the midwife is like, Mubarak, look at me, look at me. And she needed a blood pressure. And the blood pressure machine on the wall, they had the new fancy one, it was actually broken. And so she's yelling at the nurse, I need a blood pressure on her. She's like, Mubaraka, stay with me, stay with me. I need a blood pressure on. And the nurse is tinkering, right? She's not paying the midwife any attention, almost as if she's disregarding her. She's tinkering with the blood pressure machine and very consciously, like not really giving the midwife who's in charge of this situation the respect that she deserves, right? And it got to a point where like, I literally remember one time before I passed out, she was literally yelling, leave the machine and give me a manual pressure now. Right? She literally had to yell at the nurse because I'm about to pass out. She's trying to get medication in me so that I can stop bleeding and hemorrhaging. And the nurse is tinkering with uh, electronic blood pressure instead of using the one she literally had right next to her, right? And so all of those things compounded affects the lives of Black women giving birth in our medical system, in our hospitals, right? And I think the only way that we could combat that is we have to create a community of women who are conscious of the experience of Black women and able to serve them in a holistic manner. That was probably way more than you You know, I always say in life, we label things. Mm -hmm. And we've been labeling things in ways that have 
harmed humanity mm-hmm. and it's pervasive today. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I think that God and faith and religion, when it's really at the heart and soul of, of understanding the words that were written by the prophets, uh, for me, Moses, Muhammad, Jesus, and, and, and there's some others, but they're really important. And, and I know in Western medicine, we label people as a uh, Asian woman, a black woman, a white woman. We have these labels in a way that I think consciously or subconsciously brings something up in all of us that we need to heal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and exactly how it's done, I don't know that answer, but I know that we need to see God in everyone. Mm -hmm. We need to look into the eyes because that's where the soul lies deep within all of us. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and our, our, I always say, when I open someone up, I operated on, on four women today of, of all colors and we all look the same inside Mm -hmm. and and we're, we're not different. Mm -hmm. And, and, Every day I, I pray and I share the, the words that we're, we're all identical. Mm-hmm. We need to make each and every human being feel to know that God is within all of us. It's I think the way that we start doing that is for through conversations. Getting to know one another, one another's life experience, and understand that we all have different experiences, not so not so that we can discriminate against one another, right? There's actually a verse in the Quran where God says, I have made you of different tribes and nations so that you may get to know one another, not so that you may despise them one another. That's literally a verse in the Quran. You, you actually quoted that in, <laughs> in one of your readings, yes. and, and, and which I think is... And that's why I say it's very important to read all the great biblical texts mm-hmm. as often as you can, because it's so critical for all of our communities. Because no matter what your cultural food is or your many other co- cultural experiences, uh, it, we, we need to find ways to see each of our tribes mm-hmm. as, as, as really we're all related. And, and we all have the same common goal, right? Everybody's goal and, and essence is the same, right? To help one another, to live happy, healthy lives, to raise happy, healthy, fulfilled children. All of those things are common goals for everybody. And I think that when we recognize the, the similarities between us, the commonness in our goodness, then it will help to eliminate the discrimination. The racism, can I, the sexism. Can um, I ask? Yep. We need to, we, we all need to do that at all levels. And we need to stand strong and be confident in the conversations. We're able to listen to other people's feelings, Absolutely. experience, their story. The, the woman, the woman king, was mm-hmm. that the movie? Yes. The woman king. I, yes. I haven't watched it yet. Absolutely have to watch it. Awesome. Well, I know now because because I, I listened to your your uh, uh, My review. <laughs> review awesome. Which and, and where can we find people find that review by the way? 
It is on my website, fitmuslima.com. It's both written and I recorded an audio. So if you don't like reading long audio, <laughs> audios, no, it was great. I love listening. <laughs> yeah. I love listening because, because ultimately we are tribal, all mm. of us. Mm. And so it shows the strength of all humanity. And we need to understand we are ancient Africans, mm-hmm. all of us. That's our, our true source of, of evolution. Yeah. And I think that, that we need to look at it and see and feel and know the stories. Yeah, yeah. But I think that it's important for us to know the stories because we can't heal if we don't know. Right. And I, I think that that was part of there's a lot of different, uh, you know, um, perspectives of the woman king. But I think that in essence, a lot of people who are uncomfortable with it is sort of like uncomfortable with that scar. Um, and we really have to heal. It's sort of kind of like if you had a cut on your hand and you're just like, I'm just going to ignore it. And I'm not putting a peroxide on it. I'm not like it'll go away on its own. Right. It, it, it gets worse, right? You can't, then it becomes the elephant in the room. And we have a really um, unfortunate history in America of leaving things, thinking if we ignore it, it's going to go away. But you have to deal with it and know it in order for you to, in order to heal from it. And in order to grow, knowing who we were, what we did, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, is an important part of growth. We have to grow from it. And I thought the movie was excellently written and crafted um, and acted. Uh, <laughs> the actors were absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I think that everybody should see it. We need to support and know the strength of women around the globe. Mm-hmm. And, and, and certainly we can heal by the stories uh, and I, I love, I'm going to watch it. And I was inspired by, by your, your, uh, review of it. So again, thank you so, so, so much. I really appreciate you. And, uh, I look forward to us doing this again and continuing these conversations because there's so much that we all need to talk about, about all of our lives. Yeah. Would love to do this again. Hopefully one day I can return the favor and have you on my platform. Um, but definitely, this was a great conversation. Thank you. I appreciate you. I, I would love to be part of your platform and, and, and uh, share uh, with, with uh, your community. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Carnivore Conversations, hosted by me, Dr. Robert Kiltz. And don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening today. Check out drkilts.com for more and subscribe to our Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook for more inspiring content every day. Take care and see you next time.